Okay, welcome to episode 21 of the Daz and Daz NBA podcast. Uh, I'm joined once again by Darren Hill. And Darren, plenty to talk about tonight, but I'll ask, how are you going tonight? Yeah, really good, really good. Excited for, uh, you know, we we would have needed an emergency pod had we had not one scheduled, so um, perfect timing. Yeah, just perfect. so much news. And when we said before we came on air, there was, only, there was the, the small matter of the Warriors winning the title, and then we immediately move on to these other massive sort of breaking news stories. But we did want to start tonight by talking about the Warriors. It seems like so long ago, doesn't it, that they actually wrapped it up, but it was... Less than a week ago, last Tuesday, they wrapped up Game 5 pretty much in the way that we felt uh, talking last Monday they were going to. It was another fast-paced game. Cleveland, to their credit, stuck around, hung around and hung around and hung around, but the pace was just a bit too hot for them in the end. And once again, I, I felt, I don't know if you felt watching it, they sort of ran out of a little bit of gas again uh, towards the end of the game. They did. What was the? I think it was one twenty nine to one twenty. I think that was the final. That yeah, was. yeah. And the pace. See, I think I have to go back and check, but I think it was about the same pace as that. Um, the eighty four, eighty five Lakers series with one hundred and three point four sort of pace, or right up at that, right up at that level. So um, yeah, I mean the thing for the Cavs, Tristan Thompson finally turned up into the series at Game Five. So. I'm not. I'd love to know internally what, whether there was something wrong with him or whatever, because he was looked a different player than me in Game Five. Really good game, but at the end, the Warriors just had too much firepower, and, and I just don't think you can play the way the Cavs played for that in a seven-game series and expect that you're going to be able to come out on top. I wonder if we almost because of the just how good this the Warriors were before Durant joined but i think if it were any other year that finals um performance by durant would have gone down almost as the way we talk about lebron last year so he every time cleveland was making a run durant would make some impossible shot or just create off the dribble or you know it's few a few possessions where clay wasn't firing and stuff you know couldn't you know they were defending stuff well enough Unlike last season when, you know, Harrison Barnes or whomever just can't create, there you are, give it to the seven-foot um, seven Durant who can shoot shoot from 35 feet and he just created and hit in the mid-range and he hit in the post and he hit 30-footers and he just, like, it's, it is literally indefensible. So well, we almost, have, the, to, the point we almost we... have to give credit, don't we? I just sort of, having now had to, over the disappointment of not going longer, I... I've sort of guess I got a little perspective in saying maybe we're not appreciating just how fucking good Durant played. Well, I think the point I'd make on Durant is I think if he doesn't get injured, he probably does the MVP Finals MVP double. I think he was in, he was the front runner of MVP discussions before he got injured, um, and that was I guess the big negative of him getting injured. He doesn't get that individual award as well and really create what would have been the perfect season. But I think. The injury, in some sense, I guess, allowed him to take his his basketball to an even higher level within this team uh, during the finals because he seemed to more seamlessly transition to this team post-injury, more so than he did pre-injury. Um, and he was unbelievable in the finals, I agree. And I think it was overshadowed a little bit by this all this super team talk. And obviously LeBron was putting up unbelievable numbers as well. So it was a, it was a great head-to-head battle in many ways between those two, but Durant was 
far and away, I thought, the MVP of the finals. And you wonder now what what level can he get to across the 82 games of next regular season? Um, and is that the challenge he's now setting himself to go, I want to win MVP next year, be the best player on this dominant team, and then win another final series? Because I guess from a competitive standpoint, they need to have something driving them uh, for next season. Yeah, look, I I think it'll take them 30 seconds of of live basketball in October, and they'll be ready to go. I actually, there's just. It, oh, I think the interesting he, thing is for the Warriors. I mean, you, you've got to be careful. Not so much that they have to even be careful, but I, I think there's the danger that you fall into that Miami trap. And I think what we saw from Cleveland this year, where you think, ah, look, it's the regular season. We'll just turn it on when it comes to the playoffs. And I think this team wants to be at a higher level. I think they want to be winning that 70-game mark every single year that they go out there, and that's the competitive level that they want to try and get to every single season. I just mean, maybe I, what I mean to say is it's a fair comparison or to that Miami team, but remember what Miami had is they had never played together, right? And then you add a ball-dominant LeBron to ball-dominant D-Wade, like two guys who can just pound the rock to, uh, you know, Bosch, who actually probably is the one that had to, um, was the, quote, easiest to, to fit in there, versus, you know, Curry is almost as effective on off the dribble as he is, is off ball. Durant can, you know, they don't ask Durant to create a ton, but he's, you know, very comfortable, you know, with the ball in his hands. Clay spots up, Draymond spots up. So there's just a, they don't have to do what, LeBron and D Wade had to figure out is how do you share, right? When you get two ball dominant players and KD, this is probably why he's was so relieved the whole season. Imagine, I can't believe in five days of getting over it, just the, the empathy I have for Durant sitting next to Russell Westbrook for six years or seven years or whatever it was. And then, and then to go play with Steph and clay, just imagine how much fucking easier every possession is when you don't have to constantly maybe count, how many shots are getting taken, or you're wondering if, if Russ is actually going to, you know, move the ball in this possession. So I think, I, it, to your point, though, so I think it was almost, I'm going to under give them not enough credit, almost effortless. They didn't really have to work that hard, did they? I didn't see them have to really work that hard throughout the playoffs. Now, granted, they had pretty much every round of the playoffs, the, their opposition's best player get injured. <laughs> so, they, you know, they, they got they got a little bit lucky in that regard. But other than a couple, you know, halves of the Cleveland series, they weren't really, right? There was no crunch time. And so they've never been tested in the way Durant was tested year after year with Ross. So they, they really haven't been tested. So that's going to be probably the bigger question for me is, they're so far, they're so much better than Cleveland, and Cleveland is so ridiculously good on offense. Like, the gap between one and two is huge, and the gap between Cleveland and the rest of the league is almost bigger. Oh, hang on, the, hang the, on, hang on. You're talking to a San Antonio fan here, so just, yeah, exactly. just woo up on that Cleveland and the rest of the league. Talk. Well, geez, come on. All right, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> but the point I'd make, I guess, with watching Durant, um, what what it made me think of was what happens if James Harden stays in OKC and you've got Harden, 
Durant and Westbrook on the same too. I know it's a big what if and a thousand words burnt or more have been written about it over the years um, since the trade happened. But it's like, what would that offense have looked like? I guess that was more my thinking. You know, we've, we've three now ball-dominant players in the same team. Could they have ever made it work offensively or would it have broken up naturally anyway because you've got guys that needed the ball? I think that's what made me sort of start to think from the OKC point of view more than just looking back at just the, just the Westbrook uh, and Durant dynamic? Well, it's a good question. I think it's a thought experiment, but a couple points. One, I don't think we would have seen, you know, the self-actualized versions. Let's just for argue for a minute that Russ, Harden, Durant are going to finish one, two, they would have finished one, two, three in the MVP voting this year, right? Oh, of course. If Durant hadn't been hurt, they would have finished one, two, three. Yep. Maybe LeBron sneaks in or Kawhi sneaks in. No, but, I think um, you're right. I think that would have been. So let's, let's, yes, I go, that's, Obviously, that's a 0% possibility. So they wouldn't have had, quote-unquote, the self-actualized versions of themselves. Now, the, but the, secondly, the, probably the more real question is, do they have the, would they have even had the temperament, though, to play together? So what that would have required is Rust to scale it back. That would have required James Harden to still be the third leading scorer and playing entirely off-ball. And mm. KD, well, KD would have fit in, I think, just as well, except he would have probably been getting more and more frustrated over the years had they not won a title. So um, I think Katie might have left eventually. Imagine playing with Harden and Russ. <laughs> Can you imagine, right? As Harden gets better and better. So while I'm with Bill Simmons and going, you know, probably with most of the world, why did they trade? Not that they traded Harden, but why then? Why then? And for, and for that return, yep. I think was the, the problem all of us sort of had, isn't it? We kind of had to applaud Presty for, I guess having the balls to do that, but he, there's just he didn't have to do it right away. So no. um, yeah, I think the timing, especially just after just making the finals, and and they were competitive in that finals against Miami, and you thought this is a team that's set up for a multi-year you know trips to the finals, and then they pulled the trigger on that trade straight away. Yeah, and sort of went downhill from there. And the so other the, thing, sorry, sorry, just to finish that thought, it's a great question. I had I just thought to, thought of it now. So one, I don't think we'd have seen the self-actualized versions. Two, I don't think the temperament might not have been right anyway. However, three is the variable. The, the thing we can't know is who might have been a coach that could have done that, right? Is there a coach out there, you know, who could have brought out the best of them? So would, for example, uh, would $10 million a year throw in at a Phil Jackson, you know, say four or five years ago? I'm making this up, right? But someone who has that sort of pedigree and that sort of command in the locker room, not in the presidential suite, you know, that's the other thing I've never probably given thought to is, is there a coach out there who could have, who could have, um, you know, made the most of these guys, a Spolstra or a, mm. a Brad Stevens or a type. And I've, I don't know if anyone's ever kind of explored that fun thought experiment, but um, um, anyway, I think we're going off on a... Yeah, we're going uh, off on uh, one of our tangents, but yeah. I mean, I guess the, the final point to talk about yeah. with Golden State is just looking back at the dominance. And it also got me thinking about the past sort of dominant teams that we've seen. My sort of benchmark has always been that 2001 Lakers team when Shaq and Kobe were really rolling and they went 15-1 and one and it was only that Alan Iverson went batshit crazy in game one of the finals uh, that they didn't sweep the entire playoffs. And I just remember the Spurs were a one seed that year and, and uh, the, the Lakers cleaned them up 
in four very yeah. good games. And I mean, the only asterisk I guess I'd put on that is that your Milwaukee Bucks probably should have been in the finals and maybe they would have been a bit better matchup for them than what uh, Philadelphia would have been in 0-1. But that's always the benchmark team. And I think this team, I think there's another level they can get to. I don't think they were as dominant as the 16-1 sort of showed. I always felt in a single-game situation you could beat this team. I never felt they could be beaten in a seven-game series, but I sort of always felt oh, I wouldn't be surprised if this one went five or even six before they put it away. Whereas that Lakers team, to even take a game off them, oh, you were literally surprised. And I think maybe next year where we see Golden State reach that level um, of dominance, certainly just even if it's just in the Western Conference, depending on how Cleveland Rutul, um going into next year. Yeah, look, I... I just, I just actually don't think they've been tested. I think they had quite a lucky bounce with the injuries throughout the playoffs. And who, and I don't mean that they would have been beaten by by Utah. Or they would have been beaten by, you know, by the Spurs. But they, these series weren't going to be sweeps. If these guy, if these, you know, if these series go six games, for example, you know, they win four two, they win four two, they win four two, for example. So they're winning comfortably. But you know, they've been tested and they play an extra five six games. We just don't know, right? That that might be the difference between a, you know, them getting a tweak or Draymond doing something. That's where I actually think that's. A, I think Cleveland has the most fascinating, a very fascinating offseason. Obviously, surrounding what kind of where LeBron's head at, because do they think they can reload um, and catch them and just wait for a break or two, or do they have to try and do something crazy, like we talked about last week, like? you know, open up their minds to trading a K-Love or something. Well, this is the thing, I guess, the next... So, congrats to the Warriors. We'll, we'll sort of put a bow on them for now, and obviously we'll, we'll talk more about them. We expect that pretty much the same team to come back. There may be a few tweaks here and there. Uh, I know the Coward, for example, is a free agent, and who cares if he comes back? I'm sure they're not losing too much sleep over a stiff like that coming back into the team. Um, so, but... I couldn't resist having a dick. <laughs> but uh, look, with the Cavs, um, I, I think that I'm actually a little bit different to you. I don't think they're as far away as what people are, are maybe thinking at the moment. I look back on that series, it could have easily been 2-2 heading back to Oakland. Yeah. I guess the question for them is, do they stick with this style and say, we need to find a way to maintain the rage for four quarters playing at that pace? Or do they say we need to retool in a way where we can we can sort of play a different style and beat them in a different style? And that's where this sort of Paul George situation comes in because you add Paul George to the mix, now you can play at that pace and potentially go with the Warriors over the course of the four quarters. And it's hard to see if LeBron sits for two minutes, they're going to fall off the face of the earth because Paul George is going to be able to be out there. Um, and that and that's the knock, as I said last week. That's the knock I have on Kyrie and Kevin Love. They've never held the load up when LeBron hasn't been there. Paul George can. I mean, we. I think he's an well, all star. I think player. you're underselling I Kyrie. I think Kyrie can carry the offensive load, right? I think, and he's proven his big game metal. And well, he, he has really LeBron good hasn't series. Been there, Daz, he hasn't done it. Oh, you mean when LeBron's on the bench? Yeah, I mean, he did it against Boston in one game. Oh, for those four minutes a game. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. That's what I'm yeah, sort yeah. of saying. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, okay. So I, thought you were, I think I like Paul George for other reasons, that he plays defense. 
Well, and that's, that's the right, other thing, it. and that was the yeah. other point I was going to make. So we said, you know, going in against Golden State, you need probably three really good perimeter defenders. Now you've got LeBron and Paul George. Um, you can throw Shumpert out there and just tell Shumpert, don't shoot. If you shoot, we'll just take you off because you can't shoot. So, and maybe he takes the occasional three or something, but you don't really need him. A little bit like what Draymond was, in a sense, in the finals. They didn't need him to score. So you can go out there and play defense. Now, I'm not putting Shumpert on that level, don't get me wrong, but I think he can just go out there and say, just play defense. Don't worry about having to score or anything like that. The other end. So now you've got your three really good perimeter defenders. Um, and we know Kyrie can actually defend okay against Steph Curry uh, here and there um, from time to time. So I don't. Th- I think defensively it's a massive upgrade for them. Um, the thing I guess I've been thinking about is let's let's pretend for a moment that um, that Dan Gilbert says, you know what. I don't care what, how much luxury tax I have to pay next year. I don't care what the payroll is. We're going to load this up with every star we can for one season and we're just going to send the best team out there. So where they find a way they keep Kevin Love, keep Paul George, get Paul George through a trade and Kyrie and LeBron. Now, I guess the flip side of that is why would the Pacers do that? Well, if I'm the Pacers, I'm a little bit interested in these first-round picks for Cleveland beyond 2018 because if LeBron's not back, this team's going to go downhill very, very quickly and they're going to be a lottery team. They could be a lottery team in 2019 at this stage. So I don't think it's completely ridiculous that they say, let's take a J.R. Smith, some draft, couple of draft picks and even another throw-in player and, and see if we can make it work that way. Um, you know, depend, And you can even have certain protections on the pick where they go out to sort of 2021, even into those areas, when you, you can be pretty confident that unless LeBron's going to play at this ridiculous high level for the next five, six years, they are going to start to go down. And then that's, I guess, also in, incumbent on whether LeBron does actually stay around in Cleveland. Well, the earliest just on the question is, is does Paul George fit on Cleveland as the, the first available first-round pick Cleveland would have to send out is 2021. Oh, it and is I that think, long isn't in advance, is it? Well, because remember, you can't do it more That's than two years in a row. <clears throat> yep. So this one's go, this year's is gone, and their 19 ones go on to, to Atlanta for Corver. So it's 2021. Mm. It would be the earliest year, and as much as Paul George is possibly tor- torpedoed, and removed leverage from Indiana, you know, I think he's worth more than a, you know, a theoretical question would be Tristan Thompson and that 2021 first rounder, you know. So Tristan would give them the space, basically. It's almost I'd a salary I'd always rather match. send Kevin Love than Tristan Thompson in that in that sense. Well, then, but do you get that much better, I guess, is the question. Do you really get that much better by, you know, you know losing your seven-foot rebounder who can shoot threes for your – Right, so that's the question: Is do you get that much better by doing love for, for one year of Paul, possibly one year of Paul George? That's the other thing. Would no matter what you think about the salary cap, what Cleveland has got to be thinking, right, is what we're all talking about: is LeBron's contract by design only goes one more season, and so he wants to go all in to win another championship, obviously, and so I could see LeBron's motivation for getting a Paul George. But then if you're Cleveland, you've got this fine, fine, fine balance to go. What if you send out more assets, future picks, right, take on a whole bunch of stuff, 
and LeBron and Paul George leave after 12 months. Now we've got a salary cap team, you know, with absolutely no room to do anything and no future picks. So you basically have yourself almost well, the next six to seven seasons. You'd be the Nets. Be. You'd basically become the Nets. Yeah. That's, and that's well, where that's I was, what, I guess, thinking, could the Pacers be the Celtics in that? But um, I didn't take into account the 2021 factor um, yeah. with all the picks yeah. that have already gone out. So um, so that's that's an interesting point, I guess. So you probably are right. You're looking at Kevin Love or Tristan Thompson. You're still going to have to send out a first-round pick, obviously. Um, that 2021 pick's going to have to go anyway. Uh, but, well, I don't... Yeah, I just don't know. Just, From the Pacers' point of view, anyway. Well, yeah. So I'm, if I'm the Pacers, right? I'm just trying to, I'm trying to get over maybe my worst news day ever. So Larry Bird quit what a couple months ago. Um, Paul George now officially. I don't know. I suppose there's some benefit to being transparent and not dragging a franchise through 12 months of uncertainty and silence. So I kind of. I don't, I don't like that he's done it, but at least it's, it's probably better than pretending the next 12 months. And, um, and I think it's one thing to say you're going and leaving free agency. It's another to say I'm going to leave and I'm probably going to the Lakers. I think that's where, the, that's where it really hurts the Pacers because now it's like, well, buyer beware, this guy's probably not signing with you. And I guess well, it was an open secret anyway that he was preferred. Well, that's what Lakers. I go. I mean, did... Do, do the do agents and GMs, did they really get any new information by this, right? So I don't think the information is new. I think the, the clarity and the timing is what's this going to key. So there's, they're going to have to move him ASAP, right? Well, I, I would be shocked if he lasts. I mean, that's what Woj has reported today, that they are, they're already in talks. And I guess the big question now is, what's the market? Who are Cleveland bidding against or who are Cleveland bidding against you here? Um, so let's let's assume Cleveland are ready to pony up their one number one pick and Kevin Love. All right, well, what other teams are going to be in the market? Is, does it make sense for the Spurs to get on the phone and say, here's the well, market for I mean, a one? If you look at Golden State and Cleveland, right, I go, who else, who else, by the reality of their roster and the, and the convictions of the temperament of the fan base and the general management, are going to say we're we're one player away from being genuine threats to Golden State next year because that's effectively what they're asking. So if you have to be a genuine threat, right, to be able to sell to your fan base and to your ownership, you're going to trade some sort of future assets, which is what Indiana is going to expect. Like Indiana doesn't want another twenty million dollar. You know, well, apparently the don't... price is a starting player plus two firsts. That's, yeah, that's and there's what no, I've read. No, okay, well. Right, so, so therefore, could, look, and and I guess if you're looking at it from a San Antonio point of view, San Antonio first round picks are generally in the twenties, um, and I guess even from Cleveland's point of view, they might say, well, look, we can send out the 2021 pick, but if we decide if LeBron goes and we have to blow it up at the end of a year, we can then send Kevin Love out and get another first back anyway, and start our rebuild through that through that window. And even if you send Kyrie out and send the whole lot of them out and say, we're just going to stink for a couple of years, but we'll try and see if we can bring some picks back in. Whereas where the Nets really bombed it was they waived Darren Williams, they waived uh, Joe Johnson, and they let Paul Pierce leave him free agency. So all the big 
people that they bought in through these moves and these trades, they got nothing back for them at the end of the day. So I guess Cleveland's in a bit of a different situation. Yes, LeBron can leave and Paul George can leave at the end of one season, but they're still going to have assets they can deal for future draft picks and maybe look at a rebuild through that way. So they've got a few more options, I guess, than, than what a New Jersey Nets sort of situation would have been if you, if you want to look at it down the track and say, let's try and load up as much as we can for 2018, have one last shot at the Warriors, possibly going to be it anyway, um, because if we run out the same team and we lose in, in a sweep or five games, what's the chances LeBron James comes back again the next year? Yeah. So, and I guess the other question I'd have for you is, does it make sense, uh, like, because Paul George is not a superstar, I think he's an all-star level talent, but does it? But for a team like, say, a Charlotte, even a Phoenix, who over the years has struggled to attract big name free agents, does it make sense for them to say, let's just take a chance, bring this guy in for a year, and see if we can convince him to stay and finally get a free agent that way um, through a trade? For Charlotte, so I, I think you'd have to be. So, so I was going the. So yes is a short answer. If you're one of the stupid franchises, you, you think that way, right? If you just don't really, then we might see some of that. But I, I have a list of, of three teams and then a fourth maybe if we did a whole bunch of you know, um, salary jiggling. I go, there's three teams who I would say could look themselves in the mirror and say we have a, we have a team that could we think could compete for an NBA championship next year if we added Paul George. San Antonio – Houston and Washington, right? Mm. I think if you imagine, imagine Washington with a Paul George on the wing instead of a, Otto you know, Porter. instead of a, an Otto Porter, for example, right? Mm. Um, and maybe Gortat gets moved. I have, I haven't done anything to look at salaries and how you'd actually clear the space to do that. And God, they'd probably have to get rid of Mahimi, which might kill their bench. But anyway. Um, that's uh, a joke, Des. Mm. Um, so I go, I, I literally go, there's three teams, and then maybe with a bunch of jiggery-pokery with the Utah Jazz. right? So imagine a Utah with a with a Paul George type, because his style of play would fit fit their style of play pretty well. So what Derek Favors and Dante Exum and a first get you Paul George? Mm. Mm, probably. Mm, maybe. Yeah, it'd be you the know? They'd get in the ballpark, right? So imagine if they could trot if they got George Hill. So getting Paul George, you'd probably convince, you know, maybe G. Hill and Hayward to come back with Ruth Gobert and I go, There you go. You got yourself a fighting chance. But if I'm Utah, that's just not how they think. That's I just don't see that them doing a one year all in and trading an Exum in a first, for example, or even a, a Favors is only twenty five or twenty six years old. It seems like he's thirty six, but you know, he's not that old, so I go... But is it worthwhile trying to back your own culture and back your own organisation to say, once this guy's in in here, we believe we can convince him to stay? Look, if you're a culture like Pat Riley in a market like Miami with a coach like Spolstra, maybe. Um, I just it's, my, it's a shame unless Miami does something like a, they sign Blake, find a trade for Paul George, and, you know, again, do some do some Paul Riley gymnastics and you can trot out Dragic, Waiters, George, Blake, and Whiteside. 
you know, but I got, is that really going to contend for a title? So the short answer, I don't, I don't think so. I think that I think foolish franchises will think that way, right? Is he going to get seduced to playing? Well, maybe he get seduced to playing in San Antonio. Maybe well, could he I get think... seduced to playing in Houston? You know, playing at the Houston sort of run and gun pace. Maybe I guess maybe, but mm. um, I think the Spurs are in a bit of a different situation because they've been set up where they're going to have max cap room next year anyway. So if they were to to swap out Lamarcus Aldridge for or Paul George, I guess the the question there is how much better do you get anyway? But you've then essentially got a free agent. I don't think they've got any plans to re-sign Lamarcus Aldridge at the end of next year. So they're sort of putting out one free agent. Maybe you do re-sign Paul George, but if he leaves, well, Lamarcus Aldridge is going to leave anyway. So maybe if the cost is to throw an extra first rounder in on that, which is going to be in the late twenties. Well, let, let's let's do it. Let's see if we can get there, get over the hump with Paul George and yeah. re-sign Jonathan Simmons. I'll tell you what, you got Jonathan Simmons, Kawhi, and Paul George. There's the problem is the Spurs don't have any defenders. assets that Indiana wants. If their conditions are a starter plus first, I'm like, well, Indiana Max doesn't Aldridge want a starter. Well, you, you need to sweeten. <laughs> yeah, in in. In name only. Oh. No, well, he's a starting level player, but he's also a free agent in the year, and then they've got a decision, well, do you really want to pay the Marcus Aldridge massive money yeah. um, beyond next year? So I, I, t- I take that point. Um, it's, it's just a nice... So I think this trade value, I go, it's, I, I just don't see it. Like, look, are they going to find a, you know, would, you know, would, would Washington be crazy enough or... Balls, you have to trade Otto Porter, and maybe a, I don't know. Maybe you'd have to make Indiana take back a a Gortat to get Porter. So Gortat Porter and a first. Does that get in the conversation? Um, well, I guess the other thing you look at could the Clippers get involved in a sign and trade situation um, with, with a Blake Griffin? Would Paul George play for the Clippers? That's what I don't. Well, he wants that... to go there, lay what? But... Would he play for the Clippers ahead of the Lakers? I don't know. I don't know. That's that's I guess an issue. So, look, there's apparently there are other teams. I have read some rumours the Spurs are one of the teams looking to get in on this, um, but and and giving up some young assets. But I guess it, it depends what uh, Indiana think of some of the young guys that the Spurs have on their roster um, and how high they are on them. And apparently they're also trying to attach Al Jefferson's contract. To some of the trade talks <laughs> as well. Just to totally torpedo any value well, that they might get. That's honestly. right. So, you know, so it's interesting um, how they're looking at this. So, well, I, in the, the interesting days ahead, I mean, I, I, I tend to think, feel like the Cavs are on the inside running. I think the, the thing for the Pacers, you've got to look at it and say, well, is, how miserable is Kevin Love going to be when he gets to Indiana? And what's very. Exactly. So, and that's the thing where I guess you could sell me a little bit more on Aldridge in the sense where Aldridge is going to see it as a bit of a, an out and say, okay, I'm the, I'm the man again now. He, he might get a bit of a new, not, new lease of life might be putting too fine a point on it, but he might actually enjoy the, the challenge of going to that new term and your chance of re-signing him if he does play well. Um, I could see it. I, I guess the point I'm making, I could see Aldridge working out better next season for the Pacers than what Kevin Love would 
even though Love is a better player at this point. Well, I don't think. Point of view. I don't. I think Indiana's now just shot to the top of the, you know, what, the tankathon list, right? They've got their future picks. They aren't sending them out. Paul George is gone. Um, their two most expensive players after Paul George are. Can you guess? Well, I, uh, well, Jeff Teague, would Jeff Teague have been one of them? He's a free agent now. The answer is Thaddeus Young is the second Ellis. highest paid. And Monte Ellis is number three. Al Jefferson is number four. Yeah, I knew right? Al Jefferson's on the team. Jeff Teague's uh, unrestricted. Yeah, so I go, think about that, the holy trinity of, of human feces on basketball court. <laughs> Thad Young, Monte Ellis, and Al Jefferson. Oh, by the way, Monte Ellis was just suspended for the first five games of the season for getting caught smoking pot for the failed his third consecutive drug test today. So he and Reggie Bullock of the of the Pistons suspended for five games. Yeah. So just on top of it, if, if that team wasn't sad enough, their long-term asset Monte just got busted for smoking weed again. Not that I condemn that, but I just, just add it to the pile of misery. Mm. Um, that's Indiana. So I think they've rapidly kind of run up my list for, you know, the only obvious tank, tanking team next well, year. Well, that's where, if they're making a trade then, and, and their view is on, okay, we want to tank, then they want team with draft assets. Now, San Antonio That's and right. Cleveland, neither of those really fit the bill because San Antonio, they yes, they can give some first-round picks, but they're essentially second-round picks. Um, and Cleveland can't give you a first-round until 2021. So that's when the teams like the Charlottes and the Phoenixes and maybe you just go, well, let's let's start shopping with some of these teams and see. And that's where the, this Lakers stuff really does come in because obviously teams are looking at it and saying, well, it is going to be a one-year rental of this guy because highly unlike he sticks around. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it's, an in, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, a very difficult very difficult situation the Pacers well, find themselves. And you look at the teams that with the assets are the teams like Boston and Philadelphia, and given what they did today, you can tell that both of them are going in very different directions, meaning they're going in directions not related to getting themselves a 28 27, 28 year old semi star, you know, for assets. There's just no point in those teams going after Paul George. There's no point. It'd be totally contradictory to the to what they're trying to build. Um, so I go, what are the stronger cultures he could probably fit into? I don't know the Bulls. You know, they could they could be foolish enough and be dumb enough. Um, Portland has some young players and some bunch of money. They could have a bit of fun for a year if they didn't send out too much. Maybe they could, you know, send send out some, you know, Evan Turner and Alan Crabb type contracts with a, a couple of first rounders and take back Big Al and Paul George. What about the Sacramento yeah. Kings, the five and the ten pick, yeah. and uh, the twenty twenty one or something? Oh, they officially put him in the Billy King camp of <laughs> of morons if they did something like that, right? I would, I would not put anything past it, but no, the, I don't no. think the, I don't think the Kings will get involved in the Paul George. So we'll we'll certainly track that one. The, one of the other free agents we'll be tracking is Chris Paul, and we spoke about Chris Paul uh, a couple of weeks ago on the pod, and he is meeting. Now this is a court, sources say, but he is meeting with uh, three different teams as well as, of course, the Clippers. Uh, he's meeting with the Rockets, the Spurs, and the Nuggets. And I've got a bit of a hot take for you, Daz. I don't think he's going back to the Clippers. And I know people keep saying, well, he, he put this clause into the players' agreement and that gives him an extra 50, or was it 35 million? 
No, I don't know. It's a lot. I think it's 45 million or something over the course of the contract. But Mysa, and people say, well, he's he's now, he's he's meeting with these other teams for leverage. And I think, why? Well, if you want to meet with another team for leverage, meet with the Spurs, you've got your leverage. Or just walk into the Clippers and say, if you don't give me the max, I'm going to start talking to some other teams and I know I can get it elsewhere anyway. I don't understand why he needs to meet with these other teams to create some sort of leverage. I mean, the Clippers surely know he expects to get the max. If they walk in there well, and offer him anything other than the max, he's not going to be a happy camper. So well, I don't understand why he needs to set up meetings with other teams to send that message to them. I have a theory. And my theory is um, he's looking at uh, New York and what Carmelo's done. And Carmelo, right, having authority, right, with the full no-trade clause. I think he wants a full no-trade clause, and this is one way to try and cement it. And I think what he sees is the now the, the writing on the wall with um, Jerry West coming in. And Jerry West reports to the owner. I haven't seen officially, but Jerry West doesn't report to Doc Rivers, the GM. And so I think the, the noise around Doc Rivers must be intensifying. So if I'm Chris Paul and I see the writing on the wall, maybe it doesn't unfold this offseason, but over the next 12 months – I think we're going to see Doc Rivers possibly move on, and you might see yourselves a, a tear-down rebuild. And Chris Paul doesn't want himself in the middle of a you know a coaching change, a GM change, and, and a roster turn- turnover in a couple of years, you know, in his age 33, 34 sort of seasons. And that was and the getting... other point. Sorry to interrupt you, Daz, but it's, it's okay. to your point you're making. The other point I wanted to make was, are we sure the Clippers are going to offer him the max? Because Jerry West has now come in, he doesn't have a history of Chris Paul. That's a lot of money to spend for a guy that's 32 and has been injured and hasn't gotten you over the hump as a franchise. Boy, it's a hard question because it's it, – it, is it related to Blake? Question mark. And is it re- – I think we can all assume J.J. Redick is gone, right? He'll go – he's going to find a lot of money from somewhere. Um I think someone's going to pay Reddick handsomely. Um, someone's going to give him say, a... I think someone's going to overpay Reddick handsomely. He'll get three years, three years, 60, and a fourth-year option or something. Hmm. A four-year 80, I bet. Something and like that. Read it. Probably love it for a season. Yeah. He's, he's not going to age well, I don't think. So I think Reddick's gone, though, right? Do you agree with me? Reddick's probably I gone. I think Reddick's definitely gone. I can't say Yeah, Reddick's he's gone. Back to his time. And I guess there's, and I'm probably more, I'm still, that's why I kind of go, what choice do they have? So I also think Blake is more likely gone given his injury history and given the fact that Blake from other teams will present less of a risk in that way because they can probably get a bit of an injury discount and or, you know, give him like a two-year, third-year player option sort of thing where he can still get another massive contract, you know, when he's 29, 29 or 30 if he, you know, plays relatively healthy basketball for a couple of seasons. So Blake could lock into like a Greg Monroe kind of contract, like the Bucks had, you know, a three-year deal and the third year is a player option. So I think Blake also um, might be one that is is likely to go. And so therefore, I'm if I'm the Clippers, you, you bring back you bring back bring back Paul. Um, obviously, keep him and DeAndre. You're you're one five, and they're P and roll a P and R in their history. Um, and build yourself a totally different roster around Chris and DeAndre. Because um, what are your options? What if, what if you let Chris go? 
and you get you get nothing for him. You'd be what you can do a sign and trade someone to trade for him at thirty five million dollars a year. You know when they can sign him for you know whatever four years one hundred and twenty as a free agent. I just I just don't I just don't see a scenario that he doesn't come back. I just I go what do the Clippers what are they trying to build if he doesn't come back? Well, Redick is gone. I don't think I, I, I agree. I, I think they will offer him the max, but I I my view is I don't think he'll come back. I don't think he's meeting these teams just for show. Um, and I get the point about the no trade calls. I've heard that made before, but I just think and I, I guess let let's put the money aside. I mean, we can sort of agree to disagree on on how Chris Paul oh. thinks about that. Um, let's just pretend money's not an option for Chris Paul. He doesn't care about the money. What's the best basketball situation for him? So now we're in a vacuum. Money's not a, not an issue. Oh, I can tell you. Right. What's the best basketball playing, situation playing for him? Playing with LeBron. No, but I'm talking about with, with the teams he's meeting with. So he's not meeting with the Cavs. They're not in the conversation. Oh. So he's I'm, meeting with the I'm Nuggets. He's meeting with the Rockets. He's meeting with the Spurs. The Clippers clearly are not the best basketball situation for him. I mean, if he goes there, he to me, you're admitting you're never getting out of the second round. You're done. You will never win a title. Um, that's it. Pack up the pack up your bags and go home. If you if you sign with the Clippers, to me, do you agree with that? Look, there's look. So I, I just go one by one. No, he's not going to Denver. They've got Moutier, Jamal Murray, a bunch of young backcourts, uh, future assets. Um, one of the best international scouts in Karnasovas. No, not going to Denver, and they're not even close. Um, they're not a Chris Paul away from being Golden State. Um, who are the other teams you mentioned? San Antonio. Uh, you know my point of view. Like I, the thought experiment on San Antonio intrigues me. I think me. the Spurs have got to would have to gut their roster too much. But how do you get? You have to you have to gut stretch Paul and it's let some other much. players it, it, go. It's right? Not it's, it's just I can't see. And so that's where, that's where I'm kind of going. I, the I genuinely think the best basketball situation for him is like I think bigger. He's a banana boat guy. He's the union steward, right? Um, Chris Paul is on the LeBron James level of, of thinking. And I go, why wouldn't he sign a one-year deal with a second-year player option, become an unrestricted free agent again next year when LeBron becomes an unrestricted free agent, and they together assess their situation to, one, play in Los Angeles, two, together go play in San Antonio, you know, and join Kawhi in 2018-19 when all the money off their cap flies free. So I go, I think they're thinking, if I'm Chris Paul, I'm pretty much looking at either I'm going to take my $230 million and pull a, uh, and have my career be Carmelo Anthony, or I'm going to start to ring chase the way KD has done it. And I've learned from one of my best mates, LeBron, how to do that. Mm-hmm. And I signed myself a one-year deal. I give my own franchise a break. They've got every chance with Jerry West now to to convince me and woo me and create an environment and a culture and get a cap in a situation that you can lure and have a genuine conversation with LeBron a year from now. Because Chris Paul would be able to help broker that conversation, no question about it. Um, and they'd have all the leverage. The players have the leverage, right? And they're going to create the situation. So mm. that's where I think a plausible plan D is if they've kind of resigned themselves. We can't win a title with with Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, DeAndre, or any combination of the two or the three, because they don't have a lot of cat flexibility. 
I go, what's the next best play for Paul? Isn't to go fuck around at Denver or that's why I think San Antonio makes a lot of sense. I just, they can't make the cap fit. And is it maybe things beyond? Yeah. I think you've, you've, if he signs a one year deal, I think you'll be, you'll be spot on with that analysis. I, I think that's exactly what they'll be thinking. Um, whether that happens or not, I don't know. I think you're selling Denver a bit short though. I, I think he'd be a much better fit in Denver. I mean, I don't see the Rockets fit at all unless they're going to cut the ball in half and uh, Chris Paul will take up half of a ball and, and James Harden will have the other half and then they'll try and I put agree. it together. There's no, way. There's no, no way. way. Look, Spurs, nice thought experiment. As we said, I think they're going to blow it up too much. But what I'm sort of hearing is players are... Um, a lot of players are falling in love with Nikola Jokic and, and the way he plays. They like Milano as a coach. And then if you put Chris Paul there, they're trying to re-sign Gallinari as well. You've got Chris Paul, Gallinari, Jokic. Certainly not next year. They're not challenging the Warriors. But I could see in two, three years' time, add another piece to this team. Jamal Murray continues to develop. Will Barton's a nice player. They've got Gary Harris as well. I don't know, there's something about this team. I think they're coming, and I think uh, I wouldn't discount them just yet, and I, and I wouldn't even discount them from this Chris Ball. I just think it's fascinating that he's meeting with them, of all the teams out of everyone. That sort of caught my eye, and then I read it a little bit more about it, and I don't think it's as much of a pipe dream as what you maybe think it is. Well, um, why, why there, though? What's his connection? I guess I'm not following. Like he why? loves Jokic, and, and players are fascinated by the, the way the guy plays, and they like Mike Malone. He's known as a player's coach, uh, and they like, I guess they like the roster construction there as well. Um, and maybe they want to smoke some pot when they're seeing Colorado. Maybe. Maybe Monte Ellis should move there. I think it's legal in California. It is legal in California now. No, I think in the last election they had the vote. And it's legal. But how does it work? Because so if he doesn't exercise, so it's, it, he doesn't exercise his player option, he becomes unrestricted. But then they I go, why would you go into Denver, which is a they're not a year away, and he's got to be playing for twenty twenty. That's the thing. That's when I go. I don't. Well, whether they there, can present some sort of a plan, this is where we're headed, and, and that convinces him. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And whether you know playing with some young guys that have some potential. And I think, as I said, I think in a couple of years' time, I'm going to be very interested to see where Denver are. And Chris Paul, look, I guess the trajectory at the moment of the Clippers and the Nuggets, I'll take the Nuggets over the Clippers from a basketball point of view um, over the Clippers. But to your point, the Clippers maybe have some moves that I'm not thinking about and that you just sort of laid out for me that maybe aren't, aren't coming into it. And we know Jerry West is certainly a lot smarter than, than himself. Anyway, um, in putting those things together. So I guess another one to wait and see. I'll make the bowl prediction there. I don't think he's back at the Clippers uh, next year. But, um, yeah, right. I've sort of, I've I'm still, like I I've, still think he is. I, and I'm starting, to get, I'm starting to warm to this. He'll exercise his player option and play out the year. If he does play, yeah, that, that's the thing I guess I didn't foresee him sign that one year, taking that player option. Uh, but again, I felt like if he was going to do that, does he go around meeting all these guys? I don't know. Meeting all those other teams, I'm just not sure. So anyway, we'll see, we'll, we'll see on that. And I, I guess the, the final point I'd make on that, what I'm thinking back to is last year when everyone was saying, look, KD is going to take the one-year option in OKC. 
And I was thinking the same thing. Why is he moving all these teams if he's just going to sign a one-year option and resign with OKC anyway? I think he'd already made his mind up to leave. And I've got a sneaky suspicion, despite the fact that Chris Paul, when he when he negotiated that thing in the players' union, he may very well have been thinking, this is going to be perfect for me in LA. Since then, something has changed in his thinking and he now wants out. But again, let's wait and see how that one plays out. So... Nice. The biggest story, though, we haven't even talked about the biggest story yet. I mean, is this the biggest story? I think it is, the, the big trade between Boston and Philadelphia. Uh, so let me break it down. So Boston, of course, had the number one pick. They've now traded that number one pick to Philadelphia in exchange for the number three pick in this year's draft and next year's Lakers pick if it falls between two and five. And if it doesn't fall between two and five, they get the 2019 Sacramento Kings pick, um, which you would imagine, given the state of the Sacramento roster, that's going to be a high lottery pick in its own right. I can't see them turning that train wreck around in two years. Uh, So what were your first thoughts on the trade? Um, Impossible at this stage to even give any analysis I think on who won or lost I, I actually like it for both sides but just in, interested in your initial thoughts when this one went down it just uh, it almost blew me away for the balls of both sides right um, this is not an easy trade to make so from the from the Philadelphia side first of all so I, I actually think look that I probably overpaid to be honest with you he overpaid to move two spots in what many argue was a very deep draft. And there's, you know, stars all, all across, potential stars all across the top of this 2017 draft. So to give up a top lottery pick um, next year's draft, um, which we'll be talking about at this time as every bit as valuable as this one now, but we have, we have this ability to discount the future um, as human beings and or a totally unprotected 19 pick, which could be number one, right? So I don't. Philadelphia paid a heavy price to move two spots. Um, let's just get that off the table. So, but I, so I think it's a ballsy, ballsy move by them, um, but probably a good move. What, what it means is they love their their scouting on on Fultz, and they love the idea of Fultz, Simmons, and Embiid. Not to mention Fultz, Simmons, Embiid, and then their second trio of Sarich, uh, Rashawn Holmes, and Robert Covington. I go, suddenly that's a really interesting roster. That's, um, well, it's one or two medical reports from complete abject nothingness, but it's also one or two healthy seasons from having themselves a brilliantly dynamic and versatile, you know, top six players on the roster. So I, that's what it tells me in Philly, and I think theoretically the putting the ball in Fultz's hands next to um, Covington and then letting Simmons kind of play secondary playmaker. Um, and well, I think that'll be the other way around, just quietly. I think Simmons will be the primary playmaker and Fultz will be the secondary playmaker. Well, well we'll see, right, I guess. But, I, th- I, yeah, so there'll be some versatility. There will be some versatility. I just I mean, think Markel, Markel with the ball, though, is just too... I we'll think see. it's a, yeah. in many ways, it's a chips on the, it's a chips on the table moment. It's, it's not we're all in. But it is. This is a big bet now for us. We're cashing in some of those chips that we've had, yeah, well, and we're now means locking we love- ourselves into this roster. I think they're going to be active in free agency. 
I've said a number of times, I think Paddy Mills is going to go there and they'll probably sniff around a few other free agents um, as well and really fill out this roster. They're well, we'll see where Colangelo falls in the idiot GM if he's or if he falls in the good GM. Like I said, if he's trying to build himself a, a 55-win team you know, in 2019 and, and builds and adds pieces to that end, I think he'll be great. If he goes and spends right a, a Mozgov, Evan Turner, Alan Crabb, Miles Plumley, pick your poison. He goes and spends cap room just to spend cap room. You know, oh, I don't think they'll either. do that. I think they'll they'll certainly, but but they'll be targeting free agents that fit in that team. And I think Paddy Mills is a good fit in this team. I could see him. But, being yeah, like I said, they don't go cap. pay fifteen million a year for a guy to play fifteen minutes a game. Then they'll be fine. So yeah, that's right. I think Philly paid a steep, steep price. Um, so it takes a lot of balls to do that. You're right, cashing in chips, but still, you look at the price. They paid 140 cents, you know, on, on the dollar for this one to move two spots. Well, yeah, but for, look at what they they got those picks for nothing. I mean, they literally got the Sacramento pick for nothing, and I guess it's still an asset. I'm saying, what's the the value of nothing though? The value is in 365 days from now. We're going to be talking about the number two pick in next year's well, draft. maybe they get the one pick from Lakers and they've still got the one pick too. Yeah, it's possible, right? It's not impossible. Or the six pick, right? It could be mm. one or number That'd six. That would be the perfect situation for them if it, if it fell the six and then Sacramento somehow got good. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's, exactly That's, a right. That's a long yeah. shot. That's a long shot. So I think it's fascinating for Philly that they're um, they're sticking with the youth and but I, I you just you have to tip your hat that their scouting and their strategy is they love the fit of Fultz, Simmons and MB. Yeah. From Boston. Can I give probably... you my quick take on Boston sure, and I'll yeah. see what your take is. I think with Boston, they looked at it and thought we've got I think they were really tossing up between Josh Jackson and maybe even I'm hearing Tatum is in there thinking as well and Fultz. And I think they looked at it and thought, if we take Fultz, we've immediately got a roster problem. And we've now, we now have to make a move to solve this backcourt dilemma, really, because you now you've got Bradley, Smart, Fultz, Thomas and Rogier. You can't have five guards looking for minutes. It's just not going to work. So you're, you're really forcing your hand to make a move there. Whereas well, in the poor and Cameron Payne of the East, you know, Demetrius Jackson, who was a... That's pretty right, high, yes. pretty high pick who can't even sniff the floor. That's right. And a guy, so, guy like Malcolm Brogdon's getting 25 minutes a game, and poor Demetrius can't even, you know, get D league minutes. But I, I interrupted you. But yeah, you're right. so, and I think they looked at it and thought, you know, that we're probably going to take four this player. But gee, it's not in terms of roster construct point of view, it probably makes more sense to take Jackson if we can somehow move down to that three and still get a Jackson or Tatum if that's the way they're thinking. Um, and we pick up an extra first-round pick that's going to be a high draft pick, almost certainly, in the next two years, which next year's a stacked draft. I'm not a, enough of a draft expert to know what the 2019 draft is going to look like. But they said, why, why not do it? So I think it made perfect sense for them. Um, and I think, obviously, in some ways, there's less risk for them, I guess, unless Markel Fultz ends up being a transit transcendent superstar which you know if you believe some of the reports you're reading that could very well happen so another ballsy move though I mean did you see it the sort of same way though that that Boston maybe were thinking look from a roster construct point of view it just makes more sense for us to take this player if we can get that player 
well, plus an extra excellent draft pick, it, it just it's a win-win. Yeah, I think Ainge doesn't totally think in terms of fit. I think this is a consideration, but it's not the number one consideration. I think what it simply probably means is they just don't project faults the way other teams might be. Mm. I think it's a simple. So to your, what you mentioned earlier is I genuinely believe they must think that Jackson and or Tatum is a better, better projectable star than Fultz. So what was something in their workout or something with Fultz's character or something with his build or something with his biomechanics or there was something I have to think that they, they soured on. Um, but it wouldn't have to be soured that much, right? I just think they probably think the difference between Fultz and Jackson or Fultz and Tatum as it might be um, is so small they can't pass up taking uh, you know 140 cents on the dollar for this pick. Secondly, you're right. It does clear up what could have been awkward. Now, I don't know when Isaiah is due back. I don't think any of us have any medical reports or surgery no. um, recovery timelines, do we? But, but there was chatter, and there has been a bit of chatter, right, that there are players and agents, especially the top of the draft, Lonzo being the most vociferous, but I haven't heard a lot, but it wouldn't surprise me if there was reluctance from the Fultz camp. Right for one for your reason, so I'm saying from the not from the perspective of the Celtics, but from the perspective of the agent and the player, because why would I want to go play to your point and play Jalen Brown minutes next year? Fuck that! I'm the number one pick, and I need to be you know developing. And I basically fucked away a year because I had to because of these stupid rules of my not being able to go to the NBA. So I fucked around a year, learned nothing. I learned nothing in Washington. Let's be frank. I got zero development the way Simmons got zero development LSU. And so give me the damn ball and let me run a team, right, and coach the heck out of me. So I think that's probably where the Fultz camp is at. And they look around and they go, fuck, this also is wildly unattractive. So, hey, Boston, if you want to move Isaiah and um, cut Rozier's minutes to zero, um, then, yeah, we might be a little bit interested in you. But, mm, right? So they might have also had a bit of a, um, perhaps a uh, John Elway, Eli Manning, you know, situation here that we just don't know about. And if, if that were that way, they probably they've done a really good job on both sides, both parties keeping that quiet. Because I haven't heard that, but I've I think that's been whispered. So, and I think then thirdly on this point, which is Ainge, this is just makes even clearer with laser surgery, VR goggles, and all sort of reasons. His eyes are set on 2020 and 2021. He does not want to compete and or trade assets in while LeBron is the king. And number two, um, related back to Isaiah, he can still continue to try and win as many goddamn games as possible the next two years because they're the only team in the league whose losses aren't uh, inversely proportional to their draft picks. They can try to win 57 and get number one picks the next two seasons, right? That's yeah. what he's done. So he has basically insured himself from a, a public relations disaster, not a, but a public relations difficulty and challenge with a beloved Isaiah, right, of what we were talking about just a couple of weeks ago. I was like, shit, do you have to trade Isaiah now? Do you have to basically trade him to make your team um, a, a welcoming place for a ball or a Fultz? We were talking about that, right? So we're going, God, can you imagine trading away the most attractive contract in the NBA, $8 million a year for a guy who scores 
30 points a game, has the heart of a lion. Imagine how well that's going to go down with the fan base. You know, to get a 19-year-old kid who probably is going to have a PER of 11 in next year. So I go, I don't think that the playing time was a, a big factor. I just think this is Danny Ainge playing a really, really, really long game and going almost Sam Hinkie like I can get a dollar forty for my dollar, and guess what? We're still probably going to win fifty games next year. So it's like all bloody upside. And as I think about it from a Bucks fan point, um, fan standpoint, I fucking hate what's happening in Boston because <laughs> I go if things break right, and that's a long shot now with this clusterfuck of a general manager situation the Bucks have managed to, to you know to do I go just when they get great or good we're gonna have another goddamn Celtics dynasty on our hands so um so well, it's uh, gonna be yeah you too like it's gonna be the Celtics and you imagine the Sixers if, if it all breaks right for them I know. they're going to be peaking it's the early 80s all over time. again that's yeah. right. So you, yeah. you, I guess from a Bucks point of view you're hoping that Yarns's window opens just as LeBron shuts and Celtics and Sixers aren't quite there yet, and he can burst on and and, and at least give you a finals appearance. Who knows uh, what state the Warriors or the other Western Conference teams will be then either. But I guess that's that's the the, the light at the end of the tunnel for Bucks fans. Yeah, look, we I mean we I don't want to take this pod talking about the Bucks, but you know, um, I, I sort of think the Bucks have a little bit of. They've done the anti-Ainge, right, with too many voices, and they've just not been courageous enough to stick to a strategy that we've talked about a lot, where if I look at the Bucks roster, they could have already had Norman Powell, Pat McCaw, on an extra first-round pick. Right? Well, that this, latest this, pick was with the Bucks, as we've spoken about many times. Well, I, I don't think that that's – there's different – I even think just the, the Clippers pick that they gave away. So they had Norman Powell on this Clippers pick, which is 24 or 25, mm. right? So just add – just to the simple roster they have now, add Norman Powell, Pat McCaw – the 17 and the 25, you know, and I go, now we've got something, you know, now we've got multiple bites at the apple, you know, with the upside of Thon, super cheap Brogdon, a couple of great contracts with Snell and Middleton. I go, you got yourself around a star. I go, I got myself a, a fighting chance. So I think part of me has to come to the grips. I think we've lost this window by giving away those assets and these stupid Brevis Vasquez and idiot trades to throw away second round picks. Well, I'll tell you this: Patrick McCaw is going to haunt Bucks fans for many, many years. He should. Yeah, he will. So will Norman Powell. He's going to be a really good player. I, I so will Powell. Yep. Yeah, I, I watch Powell every him. minute in that yep. Bucks Toronto series, and I go, "He's got, you know, he's a little baby PJ Tucker who can shoot." And I go, "What a player!" So um, I totally digress. So to everyone, I'm listening to the pod for my Bucks update. You're welcome. But <laughs> I've heard there's a drinking game. Every time you mention the Bucks, people have a skull. So <laughs> yeah. drink up. And I've learned from Bill Simmons, right? So you can't go five minutes without talking about the Celtics or Bill Belichick. But uh, oh, I so I think this is a brilliant. Thing. I think this is a master, borderline masterstroke. Almost regardless, I go. We'll find out, right? Did he trade away Michael Jordan? Did he trade away <clears throat> Kevin Durant to pick the next Greg Oden? I guess we'll find out, but. Is it's hard to argue the logic as it stands here on the 19th of June when you get this kind of value for a pick. Um, they're going to get a good player, and he's not trying to compete you know, uh, in the next two years anyway. Yeah, I still feel like at some point, Ainge has got to push the chips into the table himself. I mean, you can't just keep picking every year, picking three, 
let's say they pick next year four and then who knows where the next pick they could even have four and five next year yeah you're building some nice young assets <coughs> but at some stage you're just going to try and develop them in house and then they'll unleash them in a few years or is it going to be a matter of piling them together and saying let's see if we can get an air well Davis. let's see if the, we can get a- the beauty right is the that is actually not the question the question is he allows himself to always ask that question and have the options if a James Harden comes available. Well, that's right? a good so point, yeah. the point is he, he doesn't have to answer that today, but given his cap flexibility, his assets, and the fact he's winning games, got everyone else's picks, he'll, he'll only have to answer that when some amazing you know, uh, sort of offer comes his way. That's my feel. Yeah, and that's and I go, why I guess I, think... I made the point a couple of weeks ago when I said I just can't see how they could screw this up because they've got all the options there on the table. Uh, yeah, to and that's why on. you and I started concluding, I don't know where we want to go next, but I'm, I think I've suddenly moved off of there and interested in, in Paul George and Jimmy Butler. I go, they're interested in Carl Anthony Towns or Anthony Davis or it pings me to say if things go totally fucking pear-shaped in Milwaukee, they're interested in... Giannis, Carl Anthony, and Anthony Davis, because those are the players they can get with this sort of assets. Why think Why think twenty eight year old Paul George when you can get, you know, twenty three year old superstars? Well, I think Paul Zingas will be on the radar too. I, I Zinger, good a, point. He's not Zinger. at the level of the other three you just mentioned, and he might. But he'd be a lot cheaper. cheaper. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. So uh, look, and I'm going to bring it back to the Bucks again, but it is relevant. I, I, I'm interested looking at this the draft now and thinking, is there going to be with some of those teams a Malcolm Brogdon effect in the sense that you see, they ask themselves, do we want a player that has higher upside or do we want a player that can come in and actually be part of our rotation next year? And we saw like the the three guys that were uh, nominated for Rookie of the Year, two of them weren't even in last year's draft. The only one that was was Malcolm Brogdon. And you could argue there was only another two players that had any sort of impact from last year's draft. One guy was 27 years old, Thon Maker, and the other guy was Marquise Chris, who had a few moments here and there um, across the season. So do you think some of these GMs are going to look at it and say, let's let's target... If there's a bit of a difference between two players, but it's not that great, and yeah, this guy's got a bit more upside, do we just target the guy that's a bit older? Um, and he's ready to help next year, depending on, you know, if you're a Charlotte, again, to bring them sort of into the example. I mean, they're looking to make the playoffs next year. They're going to much prefer to have someone come in, and I'm just sort of going down there, you know, do you reach a little bit more for a guy like Justin Jackson um, rather than take a guy that might have a bit more upside? I I think it's a great question, and... and I think the answer is going to be yes, because what this draft is, right, and I'm not the expert, but in my reading, I've studied enough to sort of say, look, this is a uh, 10-person draft, right? There's 10 or 11, you know, probably really obvious lottery picks, you know, going down to um, to Frank and to, I don't know, Dennis Laurie Markin. Dennis is generally the, the level I get yeah, to hear it. So that's right. Yeah, that's right. And I don't know, Donovan Mitchell's shooting up the draft board. So let's say it's a top 10, top 12. Once you get past them, you then have this huge number of big men, Bam Adebayo, Zach Collins, Jared Allen, John Collins, Ike Anigbogu, um, 
and I'm probably forgetting some, Harry Giles and his glass knees, T.J. Leaf, right? Justin Patton, the guy from Creighton, Jonah Bolden, so blah, 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 Swanigan. Well. Yeah, there's Latvians, you know, Hartinson. He's dro- there is literally a 12 to 15 guys who are all bigs. And I go, one, so the obvious implications. There's a lot of them, right? And the NBA is going the opposite direction. So there's going to be some pl- teams who you know, might need a big. They need a ve- developmental player. And they take him, but I think a lot of those guys are going to slip. And so to answer your question, I think these guys are going to slip down into the second round. And these players from the second round, whether they're the, the super, super scarce wing types of players, um, they'll take shots for them. And they could be old guys or they're going to take shooters. So guys who can stroke it. So I'm thinking like, I don't know, players like a, you know, like a Frank Jackson. You know, the Duke guy, uh, what's the ringer got him rated at, say, 38? What's to keep a team from taking him at 25? Because if I don't want one of these 12 totally flawed big men who aren't going to play but Miles Plumley and Timothy Mozgov minutes anyway, why not take a shot on a Josh Hart or a Jawan Evans or, uh, you know, um, some of the other some of the other guys, whether they're old guys or shooting shooting guards or point guards. That's what I think is going to happen. And it's now we're going to get into players I've never heard of, right? You know, kind of um, shooting up there. Or like a Frank Mason, one we've all heard of, right? The heart of a lion sort of player on Kansas, but by many, or every estimation, he just doesn't have an NBA, doesn't have an NBA athleticism, right? He's a pretty small guy, and he's 23 years old, but my God, that guy has, right, Malcolm Brogdon sort of heart. So I think you'll see guys like Frank Mason who are probably universally rated in the 40s. I bet you'll see him go in the early 20s just for this very reason. Why take a sucky big when I can take a shot at a, a dynamic playmaker? Yeah, I mean, I look at a guy like John Collins and I think there's a guy that would have been high lottery talent what, five, six years ago um, and now might not even yeah. be in the top 20 because of the way the league is going. Um, he just doesn't have have the skill set I guess unless you're thinking the game's going to go in a different direction um, and go more back to that style of play but it doesn't certainly doesn't seem to be that way at the moment so I don't think and when we've sort of seen look at the, uh, the best um, example of that is um, the 76 I mean you didn't even mention him um, Julie Logafor um, mm. number three pick and can they were they even going to find minutes for him next year I mean, his best case scenario is maybe he's Greg Munro. So this is where the NBA is going. And I think just the key thing I, I would be looking for, I guess, is, is maybe guys that can play multiple positions, but also want guys that are going to be defence sort of first players. I think that's where the Draymond Green factor comes in, where you you look at a guy and think, OK, let's, let's just pick a guy that does one thing or two things really, really well and then let's hope we can develop those other parts of his game rather than pick guys that do everything just okay and hope that their entire game develops. Yeah, I'm with you, and I think that's the, the – now that the salary cap is flattened out and we've seen the the, the CBA changes to try and get you know the, the players you have who can sign even bigger deals, having cheap rotation players on your roster is even more important than ever – which still has fire coming out of my ears again, 
on Pat McCaw and, and Norman Powell. <laughs> and so I go to find the next Malcolm Brogdon is, uh, you know, can play heavy, you know, 20, 25 minutes in playoff games, you know, for dirt, dirt cheap, right? Whatever he's on. Mm. That's why I think, especially your playoff teams are going to be looking for that. For that's sure. We said, you know, if you're the, and we said this on an earlier pod, if you're the Memphis Grizzlies, what do you need to do to take the next step from being a perennial playoff team to a perennial contender? And it is nailing one of these second round draft picks. And one guy's name that's actually coming up is another guy that um, has, we've talked about in the pod before, Jonah Bolton. He's really done well in a lot of his workouts. So there's a lot of talk about him being a potential lottery type talent that you may be able to get late first round even early second round um, and if you are able, are able to nail a Draymond Green sort of pick um, I think Brogdon I don't know that we'll look at Brogdon in that sort of class going forward but certainly he's out, outperformed expectations um, if you can nail one of those picks that's what can take you to the next level I mean interesting question too this is another thing that fascinates me people saying oh 22 he's too old 22 it's like that you can grow so much as a player from 22 to 26. It's, it's ridiculous sort of thinking. I mean, would you trade right now, Milwaukee Bucks fan, would you trade Brogdon for Chris Dunn straight up? No way. That's right. Because I've got – I know what I've got. I've got myself – he could play for the next 10 years. All right, Brogdon, Brogdon is who he is as an NBA player. So, no, I wouldn't, unless I'm a desperate team, you know, trying to get a – you know, like I'm a Brooklyn or a Dallas Mavericks, just hoping for any sort of upside. And Chris Dunn still um, has a high ceiling, you would think, but but Brogdon's still got improvement in him as well. It's not like Brogdon's yeah, leveled out yeah. already as a player. But that's why I think that I just happen to be looking at the the ringer one now that you've kind of put me onto this one and get me away from the draft express. That's why I'm looking at. Um, so what they also these older players have in common, right? They tend to tend to have been, well, the ones we hear about anyway, they get rated. They're from big schools with great coaching and great systems. Mm. So Josh Hart, right, not a super athlete, but, you know, he's rated sort of in the 30s. And I go, I bet you think, I bet you he's going to shoot up draft boards for the, what's called the Malcolm Brogdon effect. I'm right? Josh Hart there when the Spurs pick at 29. Yeah, Juwan Evans, the super awesome lightning quick kid from Oklahoma State also. Um, he's only a sophomore. But still, he's got that back backcourt playmaker, you know, twenty points a game sort of style. Two solid years at, you know, um, where Marcus Smart went to school, OSU. Um, players like that, Frank Jackson from Duke, um, you know, the not backcourt guys, but you know, Motley, Motley at Baylor, those sorts of guys, I think are going to shoot up. Frank Mason's the other one I mentioned. I think they're all going to shoot up these boards. So while they're probably rated these, you know, I guess in terms of their maybe their ceiling. I think you're right. I think you're bang on that these these giant, flawed, big dopey seven foot two dudes. If they can't guard, if they can't you know do Thon Maker and shoot threes and guard multiple positions and chase Kyle Lowry, um, you know off the three point line and chase him to the rim, then why then why am I? That's right, and that's where I look at you know you go down and you look at a guy like Jordan Bell. Um, and at least he's bringing some defensive intensity. Um, and they said he's one of the better pick-and-roll defenders they've seen in the workout and things like that. So that that's the sort of thing I'm looking for from a big man rather than the guy, um, again, the pick on yeah. Collins a bit, 
but a guy that can, yeah, he can score in the post. Well, okay, how many options is he going to have to do that in the in today's NBA? I mean, I remember them a guy that they were waxing lyrical about a few years ago by the name of Noah Vonley and how good he was going to be in the post and what a great player he was going to be offensively and look how that's turned out. <laughs> you know, and that's that's in all seriousness. At so least he's showing flashes in year three. <laughs> he's showing flashes. But I, I think that's that's the other thing. And we've said, again, something with uh, you know, sort of recurrence of a theme here. You have to be patient in the one and done the year with these guys. I mean, we're sort of waxing lyrical about faults and then ball and things like that now. But none of these, very few, if any of these top 10 players are going to make an impact, a meaningful impact in the NBA next year. That's a good point. Yeah, look, I th- yeah, I think Lonzo will have the ball. He'll play 35 minutes if he goes to LA. He'll play 30 minutes a game. So he'll make an impact. He'll be probably wickedly inefficient. But, oh, God, imagine that team with D'Angelo. Ingram, Lonzo, oh, Randall, Nick Young. Oh my God, they have they'll have thirty turnovers a game. <laughs> well, they're going to be a mess, but, uh, and that's why that pick becomes very, very interesting. Because I, I, I know they have no incentive to tank uh, next year, the Lakers. But it's going to be a circus if they take ball. And I'm well, still not what, convinced they do take. Ball. I'm not convinced they're going to take him either. I, I've said before. I go uh, Magic Johnson. Is, it's Magic Johnson. This guy. This guy beat AIDS, right? This guy is an ultimate, ultimate competitor and, a, you know, a d- deeply loyal sort of professional. I go, this guy, he's just not going to oh, – I just can't see him being seduced, you know, and dealing with the circus. Mm. Uh, I, that's the thing. The circus I, is – that's real. That circus is real. Yeah, and I, Man, you miss on that pick and you'll be you, – they'll get himself fired. I don't know. That's that's going to be hard. We talked about that before, but I get there. So the other point I was going to make, just when you're asking about the draft, of which I'm not an expert, but what I like about you know um, players like a um, th- this what feels like a deeper draft of them for maybe just because we have so much more information and um, we know a lot more about these players now after our after the tournament finishes and we get all this awesome stuff from DX and such. But but part of me says in the one and done era the volatility of these picks is so much greater, mm. right? You've seen from the Rudy Gobert's and the Hassan Whitesides and the, you know, everyone that Denver seems to draft Jokic and Nurkic and in Brogdon a bit, Draymond Green, right? All these late first, second rounders, not just turning into role players, but ser- you know, serious impact players. The volatility is so much better that I'm that aspect gets me away a little bit from the, you know, the, the hype train around, you know, um, tankathon and how you have to lose 67 games, right. In order to get a great player and restores for me a little bit of faith that great, you know, a great scouting department and great, you know, great general managing, you know, like what's happening out in Utah and in Denver and that sort of thing gives me hope. Well, I think it kind of makes the NBA a bit more fun, doesn't it? I think the scam and look, the one and two and three picks, they're still valuable. Um, and, oh, and we're sure. seeing that, yeah. you know, I think for the 10, I really don't think, and I mean, we're seeing Darren Fox, we said that at the time of the tournament, sometimes going to talk themselves into this guy because he had a good tournament. Um, I'm reading a bit about this guy. I think he's going to be a bust in the NBA. I really do because he can't shoot. So a point guard that can't shoot, we've seen that. Um, now, hopefully Who? he can develop. Who would you say? 
uh, De'Aaron Fox. Oh, Fox, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm just looking on the Ringer site now, and like this is a guy that shot well under thirty percent from three in college. Um, did not really shoot well. Didn't even finish that well around the rim. Um, that does not, to me, um, translate in today's NBA into being a good player. Look, it certainly could prove me wrong, um, but that's the sort of. But I, I guess the larger point I'm trying to make is that I think today, yes, scouting is still important, draft pick positions are still important, but development has become so much more important in today's NBA than what it was years ago because these players are not coming to your ready-made pros. You know, I remember when the Spurs drafted Tim Duncan in 97, he was in the MVP discussion in year one. He was he was one of the guys, that, he might have been fourth, fifth favourite or something to win the award. In his first year in the league, um, he was a ready-made pro. Now he was a four-year yeah. college pro, but that wasn't that unusual even then um, to get guys coming out. I mean, even Van Horn, who I think was number two pick that year, came in <laughs> and was very good um, in his first year. Certainly not at, um, at, at Duncan's level, but the rookies could come in and they would contribute in the first year. Yeah, now we're just not seeing it. So. And, and I like what Memphis did, said it a few times, you know, get get your first round pick, particularly if he's in the 20s or something, throw him in the dealer for a year and forget about them and just say, just go and develop, learn the game and then come back to us because there's no point you getting five minutes a game with us and the Hooper DMP CDs on the end of our bench and then, you know, how do you develop? Then you end up being the next Hashim Thabit and they probably learnt their lesson, Memphis, from what happened with Hashim Thabit and the fact yeah. that here's a guy who was a number two pick, sat on the end of their bench for years. When it finally came time to play, he just hadn't developed at all. And he's out of the league a few years later. Like Anthony Bennett. Anthony Bennett was another one. I mean, I, I, I mean Bennett, Bennett had a few more opportunities than Thabit did yeah, in terms did. of minutes um, on the court. And that's where I think the G League, just and we probably wrap on this tonight, is the G League and, and how... The league is now looking at development. Every single NBA team will have their own development team in the G League now. And there's even talk that high school recruiting will come back in, but it will come back in directly through the G League. Um, and there could even be a situation where you have dual drafts. That's like like what uh, I think does Major League Baseball have dual drafts. At the moment, I'm not familiar with that, but a draft where you're looking at college players, but a separate draft where maybe looking at high school nope. players and bringing them through the G League. Look, it's all one. I don't know where so baseball knows. They have one draft, and what happens oh, okay. if you're drafted at age 18, you sign a professional contract, and then you're a pro. You can, you'll never have amateur status again, but that's what players use as negotiating leverage. So get a scholarship at a university and use that as negotiating leverage. So if they don't like the spot they were drafted, don't get enough signing bonus they can continue to go into university and they're eligible for the draft again in the following year. And the team loses their rights after at that season. So oh, it's a, it's a risk yeah. for teams. Yeah. So but that's where, I've, so that's where I got that idea. Of that's right. Drafted twice. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and so I guess from that point of view, and, and this is the end, never any, what is the best way to structure this? Is it, some people have suggested, and I think Steve Kerr put this forward, look, it's better to have players stay in college for the four years or even two or three years, have the age limit, but they need to be paid. Um, and even if it's money that goes into a trust fund or something like that, 
um, for the time that they spend in college. So you're not well costing them money essentially from stopping them from turning pro. Look, the, it's all going to be a transition, right? So the trick is the fact that the NCAA, up until recently, right, the last few years, um, is still a pretty amazing training ground and development ground for NBA players, right? But that's what that's what's starting to happen, right? Is these you know the one and done era that they're getting players who are so ill fit, and the problem is also the structuring of their contracts, right? They get four or five years. Guaranteed. It's not like it was years ago, right? Maybe this was the point you're making about Hashim Tabit and so forth. But you know, day one and you know, 15, 20 years ago, you could sign Glenn Robinson to a, I think he had a hundred million dollar, eighty million dollar rookie contract, mm. right? So at least the CBA has gone in the right direction from that perspective to say that you know we should not be guaranteeing you know tens of or hundreds of millions of dollars to kids who haven't played a minute in the league. And so the structure of the rookie scale contracts is a good thing to protect teams in that regard. How the problem is, by the time they end up with their finish their first contract, they're just getting good, and then they're fucking free agents. So that's where I think this is the 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 longer the longer view conversation is that um, is is how what is effective development. Right, and then it's all about how it's going to have to work with the NCAA. So with this, it's age limit conversation. So imagine in in one camp, you make the silver talks about the age limit being instead of nineteen, it becomes twenty. Well, what's going to happen? Players are going to start looking at well, do I go play for, you know, um, giant steaming piles of hot garbage at University of Washington, like Fultz, and really sweaty steamy garbage down in New Orleans? like Ben Simmons for two years, right. or we're going to do more Terrence Ferguson and more Brandon Jennings and countless other players. And go, you know, bleep it, bleep you, um, NCAA. Mm. I'm going to go play in Turkey or Croatia or yeah. Australia. And so that would be bad. That would definitely be bad for the NCAA. And you can, and they have a lot of, they have a lot of authority and a lot of power right now. So I still think a best solution is not a bloody 20 year old, age limit, but which is this point, which is uh, um, uh, the NBA's right to draft 18-year-olds and structuring these two-way contracts like they have, but having more of them, and but thinking about how you can have different structured, you know, NBA contracts. So once the fact, once that they're finally good, they're not unrestricted free agents. That's that for me is the big trick. Is we train them up, and then they're all going to end up in you know big market teams. Yeah, maybe we just need to adjust our thinking and our expectations of what to expect from rookies. Uh, and to your point, just make it a bit fairer for the teams at the end of those contracts to make it a bit easier to sign them. Um, I, I still always look at the NCAA and just look at the amount of money they're making and think surely the players could have a part of that to stay in college that extra year and then be able to go in and not necessarily be financially worse off. That's a whole different... Man, we could spend a... We could have yeah, years-long pods yeah. about NCAA basketball, but you're right. It is a, It seems a, an unbelievable injustice um, for the top players. I guess it's you know, prey the ones who don't get injured. They more than make up the, that money, you know, with exposure and and the entire know. product though is is suffering in a sense because you're now having to wait for these rookies to come through a little bit, little bit longer. And the NCAA, what well, we saw the, the tournament basketball this year, was a complete mess. 
Well, that's the argument. That's Sil- Silver's potential argument is like, you know what? We want to, are, we're responsible for the NBA product, the professional product, what these, these young men do between, you know, between age 17 and age 20, not our concern. You're eligible to play in the NBA at age 20. You know, it's a step back towards that direction. I think that's a restraint of trade. I don't like that philosophically. I don't, I don't like what that does at 18-year-old kids who want into the draft to make a couple million dollars. I, I just don't like, I don't like that, uh, restricting, you know, what these kids can do um, and force him to go play in, in Turkey or, or wherever. So I don't like the, the raising of the age limit. Um, I just think that, yeah, we'll, I guess we'll see is this, I think it's going the right direction, though, with these two-way contracts and the 16th and 17th roster spots. I think that's going to be a not, it's not going to be trivial. I think this really smart teams who draft well, and especially with your draft and stash, your international scouting, like your Spurs and the Nuggets have oh, done. It's going to make, you know, the the smart teams are going to have a real competitive advantage. That's now. exactly right. And That's exactly right. The Memphis right. Grizzlies, the the Denver Nuggets, the Raptors, the Spurs, um, yeah, the Warriors have certainly done well in that area too. They're the teams that are really going to have, um, and that's what worries me, I guess, from the Bucks' point of view. This this sort of upheaval and the and the nonsense that went on trying to new GM that that doesn't reflect well on what's on how the organisation is being run. But we won't go down. Well, that. no, I, my my only comment on that is it's <laughs> I won't going to go deep into it. Is that I've I've had this debate in Bucks in the Bucks um, and Brew Hoop where Bucks geeks talk is that ninety percent of the people are furious about it, but I say look at it this way: it's a partnership, right? It's not a um, it's not a single owner structure like a Vivek or a mm. you know Pick or a Lacobe or a Balmer or anything like that. It's a pretty unique um, equal triumvirate partnership. And the only positive from this though is that the partnership said, you know what, we're going to respect the voice of one of the partners who was very anti um, Justin Zanuck for whatever reason, and we're going to agree to go in a different direction. So instead of doing what I've seen firsthand, a destructive pattern of behavior in partnerships is horse trading or, you know, so that the the minority partner saying, you know what, I hate this decision, but okay, guys, I'm not going to stop it. And they go through with it anyway. He's keeping score. Now he's not, now he's not emotionally and, and physically and intellectually invested in that joint decision and they're sort of all keeping score. And so the only positive I take from this, and it's not an insignificant one, just one that doesn't get play, is at least the ownership made a consensus decision. As clusterfucky as it was, <laughs> at least they stayed in unison. Right? So I think the worst case scenario wasn't even close to being realized, which was one owner says, I hate it, and the other ones overrode him. That would have been the worst case. Then we're... Then we're talking about, all right, count the days until, you know, we're lawyered up and the franchise gets sold off to someone who doesn't want to keep the team in Milwaukee. So mm. that's all I'll say. Now, yeah. we need, we can't end the pod on that. You just no, 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 to... let's end the pod. We got, Friday <laughs> is the draft day. I want to get your best case scenario for the Bucks. What's the play you've got your eye on for Milwaukee Bucks next year? My player is... Um, Super muscle um, semi ojale from oh, yeah. from SMU. I was just scrolling so, down. I just scrolled onto him. I knew where you were going. I watched. So this is my deep research of my seven minute um, DX video. Um, he has a jumper that looks like um, Kawhi's. He's a wall of muscle, and it's got this beautiful, perfect, mechanically repetitive 
in the best way possible jumper. He is not a flexible athlete, so they kind of compare him to to Jay Crowder or, or even Jonathan Simmons. But he is a, I just think he's a, a bit of a physical beast that would fit nicely with the with the Bucks. That's my guy. Who's your Who's your Spurs wish list? Who's your Spurs, Spurs Josh, Josh Hart, number one. But if we miss yeah. out on Josh Hart, I like Jordan Bell as well. Um, I just oh, want, yeah. I want defense first, guys, um, for this team at the moment. And uh, Bell's nice, nice player, but Josh Hart, a nice wing player as well. And I think both of them can come in and contribute next year. Spurs don't have a great history of playing rookies straight off the bat. But, um, you know, it would be nice to see a guy come into the rotation um, from day one for them. And just a shout-out to a couple of players with Australian connections, Terence Ferguson as well. He's been really going well in the workouts. So he's sort of... I've seen him going mid-teens to sort of mid-twenties. So it's going to be another interesting guy um, to see where he ends up because he apparently has been shooting the lights out in all the workouts, which is something that was a real um, problem for him and, and one of the weaknesses that people expected to see in his game and he's really played well from that point of view and as I mentioned earlier Jonah Bolden um, has been rising up draft boards when we spoke about him Daz he was ranked 46 I'm looking at him now he's number 27 um, and possibly going to the Brooklyn Nets which would be a he's nice having amazing he's having amazing workouts I'm told yeah that's what yeah. I'm hearing and I think if he yeah. goes through to I'm just looking at where the I'm sure the 76ers would love to see him there at 36 because I know Brett Brown has a has a history with uh, so he he would be all over that pick. Um, oh. He somehow fell down. Yeah, I, I this draft is. I think we don't know which guys, but I, it feels a certainty, doesn't it? There's going to be. It feels like the second round is going to be full of two or three. I don't want to say stars, but you know potential all stars. It just feels think, that yeah, way, doesn't I, it? I think it's going to be a much more impactful draft on next year's season than what the last draft was where we really yeah. had Malcolm Brogdon and no one else. Yeah. My other secret after my second round pick is I, I want Sundarius Thornwell, not just because he doesn't have a, he's a kick-ass name. Um, <laughs> but you know, he was the, the, the NCAA tournament, you know, one of the stars in South Carolina, you know, they compare him to PJ Tucker and West Matthews He's 20, you know, almost he's Brogdonian, He's 22, almost 23. Um, can play hard nosed defense. Like that's my, that's my Bucks super super wish list is Ojale and, and Sundarius. Okay, well we'll leave it there then, Daz. We'll, Friday we'll be watching um, with great interest. We'll be back Monday. We'll break down the draft. Um, no doubt there'll be some more free agent news, rumors around. I, I would imagine maybe even Paul George's future is settled by then. So we'll have plenty to talk about. No doubt across the off-season. But uh, have a good week from here, Daz, and no doubt we'll be in touch Friday and we'll talk again on Monday. We love you, Zaza. Bye-bye. <laughs> That's been cut, by the way. <laughs> no. no. See you, bud.